Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, we read, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them, bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sent him and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and, and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. In Matthew's gospel, we've seen the revelation of the king in chapters 1 through 10. And then the rebellion against the king in chapters 11 through 13. And then his retreat or retirement, if you will, of the king in chapters 14 through 20. But now he's going public. He's going on record. He is going to extend an invitation, if you will, to believe him and receive him. But the section is going to wind up highlighting the rejection of the king in chapters 21 through 27. The chapter will begin with three definite signs to the nation of Israel, followed by three parables. Remember, Matthew presents Jesus as the king. And and so Matthew will present the king in verses 1 through 11. The purifying of the temple in verses 12 through 16. And then the cursing of the fig tree in verses 17 through 22. So the chapter is intended to reveal the sins of Israel and the rejection of Jesus and then provide a kind of an explanation of why that has happened. So how is that even possible? How could the religious leaders have missed the Messiah? How do we explain the spiritual blindness that happens to them? Jesus earlier in his ministry had cautioned the disciples and others about bringing undue attention to Jesus. Saying, look, 
tell no one. He would open blind eyes. He would unstop deaf ears. He would heal the sick. And he would say, hey, look, I just need you to sort of keep this quiet because he was going to avoid a public confrontation. But now, all of a sudden, all of that changes. Jesus is going to come out in the open. What changed then? Well, the Father is going to fulfill prophecy. Remember, Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 20 that he will go to Jerusalem. He will be arrested by the religious leaders and the Roman rulers. He will suffer. He will die. He will come back to life. God has placed this event in chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, on Christ's calendar hundreds of years before. He wrote it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26. This was something on his calendar. It was something that was designed literally hundreds of years in, in advance. And so Jesus will allow for the first time in his ministry the crowds to publicly declare that he's God's anointed one in verse 9. All kings deserve a coronation ceremony. But for Jesus, it will be a crown of thorns rather than a crown of gold. It will be a cross before the throne. Earlier in his ministry, the crowds made an effort to take him and make him king by force in John chapter 6, but he refused because you see, Jesus is king, whether people acknowledge it or not. Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem to be made king, but rather to be welcomed and honored and obeyed in the temple, in his house. Again, the day was planned, prepared, prophesied. No wonder there was a parade. Look at verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now again, I want to put things in perspective for you. Jesus has spent the last nine months of his ministry as we followed him through the gospel of Matthew. He has spent the last nine months traveling. He has stopped in some 35 places along the way. And this is the last stop. He is made in Jericho. Remember where he healed the blind men. He's made his way through the winding road up to Jerusalem. And in verse 2 saying to them, go into the village opposite you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Jesus gives two of the disciples an answer to anyone who says, tell me what it is that you're doing. Why are you doing this? If anyone approaches you along the way and says, explain to me what it is that you're doing, you're to say to them, the Lord has 
need of them. Now, why in the world would Jesus need a donkey and a colt? And in the context, it's to fulfill prophecy. But I want you to think for a moment about all that that implies and all that that means. God, in his power and majesty and perfect wisdom, prepared these instruments to be in the right place at the right time to fulfill his perfect plan and his perfect purpose. But what should come, not as a shock or as a surprise to you, that God is going to fulfill prophecy and he's going to fulfill his plans and his purposes, it might come as a shock to you that the same could be said of each and every one of you. That God has a plan for you, a purpose for you. Some of you have some idea of what that might be. Some of you may not know what that is. We know, remember, that Jesus himself said that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus seeks sinners. And in a very real sense, right from the, the start, this becomes an illustration of grace. In what way? Well, most people don't appreciate being compared to a donkey or her cult. But it shouldn't come as a shock and a surprise to you that human beings are often compared to animals in the scriptures. We're compared to a sow or a pig when it comes to uncleanness in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. The Bible speaks of human beings like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each and every one of us have turned to his or her own way. But the Lord would lay on the Messiah the iniquity of us all. And so sinners are compared to dogs as objects of contempt in Matthew 15, 26. To a wild ass in our ability to be willful. And, and untamed in Job chapter 11, verse 12. In this text, the donkey is tied, in verse 2, with her foal. In a very real sense, the sinner is tied to sin, in bondage to sin, according to Galatians 3.22. Mark's gospel tells us that they found the colt tied by the door on the outside in the street, and we're told to loose it in Mark eleven fourteen, Because the donkey and the foal are tied to the street, they're not in the stable. They're not in a comfortable place, a protected place, just like the sinner who is outside the covenant of God. In Mark's gospel, we're told that, they, that the donkey and the foal would, would be, be in a place where two roads meet. Just like in real life, where Jesus meets the sinner between two roads, a broad way and a narrow way. In Mark's gospel, we discover the, the colt or the foal had never been ridden and therefore useless, according to Mark 11, 2 and 3. Go into the village opposite you, and we think that that's probably Bethany. And as soon as you enter it, you're going to find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And then if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. 
How like the sinner, useless to God, because our flesh cannot please God. Apart from God and apart from Christ, we provide no useful service. And some people, of course, reject that notion. They think that they have something good and decent to be able to contribute. But we learn from the scriptures that all of our righteousness are like filthy rags. Both donkey and colt are known by the Lord, just like the sinner. Before time began, before his ministry began, even before the prophecies were ever made or the prophecies ever fulfilled, Jesus knew exactly where they would be found. He knew exactly how they could be used. He knew exactly what was going to be allowed or disallowed. So both donkey and colt were prepared and then released by a power, and then brought to the Lord Jesus in verse 7. So the Holy Spirit, in a very real sense, is the power that releases us, brings us to the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. And so Jesus is going to use this cult, just like he uses men and women, to bring people to Christ, to give permission to use them. One more thing. Instead of thinking of yourself as a donkey, we might think just a little bit differently just for a moment. Instead of thinking of yourself as a donkey, you might think of yourself, do I have a donkey? By that I mean, do you have something which the Lord is asking you to give back to Jesus? So that you might move Jesus and the story further on down the road. It might be a gift. It might be a special talent. It might be something natural or supernatural. It might be something artistic. It might be the ability to learn a language or speak a language. It might be some technical ability that you could use for Jesus. It might be tangible or material like a real Donkey in the ancient world would transport people. God gives us goods and services in order to advance the kingdom. Jesus needs all his people to carry out his purposes to act and fulfill his will. But here's part of the point. Your life, your circumstances, your accumulations have all been carefully prepared. By God in advance. We go from the preparation to the prophecy. Look what it says in verses 4 and 5. All this was done. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying. Tell the daughter of Zion. Behold your king is coming to you. Lowly. Sitting on a donkey. A colt. The foal of a donkey. Why a donkey? And why specifically a colt, never ridden? In the Jewish culture, an animal was devoted to a sacred task. It was normally set apart. It was prepared, if you will. And then it was called upon or released from ordinary work in order to do an extraordinary work. We find that in Genesis chapter 49, verses 10 and 11. It says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. 
nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of the grapes. There was a hint that a Messiah was going to come. Saul, Israel's first king, was a keeper of donkeys. David rode a donkey. It wasn't until much later that riding a donkey was beneath the dignity of a king. So the donkey that Jesus rode speaks in part of his person and character. In what way? It's lowliness, humility. This was a moment that was ordered and orchestrated from before the foundation of the world. One Bible scholar writes, quote, look at him. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes not with fearful pomp or power, but sits on a donkey, which is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. Thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive them or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and to take them on himself. Jesus did not come to destroy, but to love. Not to condemn, but to help. Not in the power of force, but in the strength of love, unquote. Humble, lowly transparent, a suffering servant. But make no mistake about it, the next time he comes, he comes as a conquering king. He comes with robes dipped in blood. He comes with a blazing sword. He comes with a celestial horse from heaven. Back in the day on my radio program, people would ask me the question, do you think there, you know, do you think there'll be animals in heaven? It usually had something to do with a dog. You know, will my dog go to heaven? And of course, tragically, I would always go for the laugh. I would just say, just call him and see if he comes. But as you know, some people love their animals. They love their dog. They don't want the joke. They want an answer to their question. Will there be animals in heaven? And I say, you know what? I don't know everything about everything, but I know that at least one type of animal will be in heaven. Jesus comes from heaven on a horse. And it's not a horse from here. It's a horse from there. Jesus has carefully ordered everything. And it would seem that the donkey's owner was a Christ follower. And again, this exact date was selected from eternity past. The prophecy in part is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of the donkey. But Matthew, you'll note, omits. Rejoice greatly. He doesn't quote that. He omits, he comes with salvation, just. When Jesus approached the city, 
He doesn't rejoice. He weeps over the city. How is it possible that Jesus comes to the city that's been appointed on this particular day and he weeps over the city because Jesus understands how can people rejoice over a city that is destined for judgment, that it isn't salvation that's coming, but it's judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem. Now, in one sense, again, Matthew omits he is just in having salvation. Is the Messiah just? He is. Does he have salvation? He does. But the justice and the salvation is going to be for the future fulfillment. In Revelation chapter 19 verses 11 through 21. Not when Jesus rides a colt. But when he rides a white horse. Jesus did have salvation. But they're going to refuse it. That's what the writer in John chapter 1 verse 11 means when he says. He came into his own but his own received him not. And the prophecy of Daniel predicts it with chilling precision to the very day. In Daniel chapter 9 verses 25 through 26, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street will be built again. The wall, even in troublesome times. And when the 62 weeks are over, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is a, to, to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Sir Robert Anderson did the math. 62 weeks equals 434 years. Seven weeks equals 49 years. 483 years times 360 days because the Jews used a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar. It came to 173,880 days. Then you back off seven years worth of those calculations. The only decree given in the scripture that was authorized the rebuilding of the city and the walls took place in Nehemiah chapter 2. It was dated to the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which is a date that is established in history at 445 B.C., the date is one of the most well-attested dates in human history. In summary, Sir Robert Anderson's book chronicles the span of time. It began March 14th, 445 B.C. It concludes April 6th, 32 B.C. or A.D. This day. This day. The day that's spoken here, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, down to the very precise date. How is that even possible? Because predictive prophecy proves divine intelligence. Not just behind the Old Testament, but behind the New Testament. Prophecy proves the existence of God, but not to everyone's satisfaction. I concede that. Not everyone is convinced. 
Prophecy authenticates the deity of Jesus. Prophecy demonstrates and illustrates the inspiration of the Bible. The Old Testament contains some 300 references to the Messiah that are specifically, literally fulfilled in Jesus. Some people might object and say, well, you know, those prophecies were written at the time of Christ or afterwards. These are self-fulfilling prophecies that Jesus and his disciples manufactured in order to appear to fulfill prophecy. But the stubborn facts are that the Old Testament was complete in 450 B.C., The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which happened to have been initiated during the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus in 285 to 246 BC, it becomes rather obvious that if you have a Greek translation of a Hebrew text dated prior to 250 BC, there's sufficient evidence that the prophecy of Zechariah and the prophecy of Daniel and all of the other prophecies relating to the Messiah could not have been manufactured. This is sufficient evidence to prove the existence of prophecies in advance. That God knows stuff before it happens. Not just about the planet earth. And not just about the unfolding history of civilization. And not just about the calculation which is going to result in salvation. But he knows about your life. From beginning and middle and end. And so we see the parade of the king. Look what it says in verse 6. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. You should underline that because this is a rarity. (laughs) The disciples didn't always go and do exactly what Jesus said. But when they do, almost invariably good things are going to happen. Look what it says in verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the nearby trees and spread them on the road. Think about what you're reading. The crowds welcome Jesus. The people spread their garments and cut down Branches, palm branches from nearby trees. They prepare his path in verses 6 through 8. They proclaim his praise in verses 9 through 11. John's gospel reminds us that the crowds are there in part because of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, again, in John's gospel, chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, and then again in verses 12 through 19, it will, in chapter 11, speak of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And again, this takes place just prior to this. Lazarus has already risen from the dead and people are showing up in droves. Not just to see Jesus, but to see Lazarus who's come back to life. In the ancient world, throwing clothes on the path of a monarch was a custom that would date back all the way to the times of 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. It symbolized respect. 
and submission to an authority. This is the ancient way of saying, we place ourselves completely in your control. You can do whatever you want. You can even walk all over us if that's what you want to do. The branches, again, were cut down from nearby palm trees. The palm in that culture and that society represented joy. It represented deliverance. It represented salvation. This is the rabbi from the Galilee who heals the sick, raises the dead, teaches with authority. It says in verse 9, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's what's happening. The people are quoting Psalm 118, verse, verse 26. The expression, Hosanna, means save us right now. But what are they being asked to be saved from? Is it economic oppression? Is it political oppression? Are they being asked to be saved from the external constraints of a foreign power that's manipulating them? Are they talking about the internal brokenness that comes of living in a broken world? Remember, in Jewish culture and society, it wasn't the environment that hurt you. It was you who hurt the environment. The reason why the environment was broken was because human beings were broken because of sin. And this is something that's fundamentally different about Christianity than the rest of the world. In the world in which you live, many people think that global warming and climate change is the most pressing issue of our time. That's because they're convinced that it is the climate that controls people. They're convinced that it is the brokenness inside the human heart that is the testimony of what's gone wrong. And they fail to realize that according to the Bible, it's sin in the human heart that that's what's gone wrong. These are shouts of praise. There's a group shouting from the front. And then there's a sh group that shouts from the back. This was known as an antiphonal procession. So if we could put it in its proper context, the people in the front would say, Hosanna to the son of David. The people in the back would say, Hosanna to the son of David. The people in the front would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people in the back would scream, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Again, this is going to create an atmosphere of celebration. It says in verse 10, and when he had come into Jerusalem... All the city was moved, saying, who is this? You can imagine, it's, it's captured the hearts of everyone there. We should pause for a moment and ask a different question. Who's in the crowd? Who's there? There are Jews living in Jerusalem. There are Jews who have made the journey from the Galilee and elsewhere. There are Jews who have heard and witnessed the teachings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. 
So there's a lot of different people with a lot of different expectations and a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different understandings and beliefs. It says in verse 11, so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The crowds cheer. For a brief moment, there is joy. There's celebration. Jesus is met with enthusiasm, honor, respect. Do the crowds believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah? I suspect many of them believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies. They believe that he is the Messiah. They believe that he is the instrument of deliverance that will secure independence from Rome, secure autonomy and self-sufficiency, secure the opportunity for an independent kingdom. They're praising God for what they consider to be a prophet who is a king, a national leader who will restore the nation's glory and fulfill the promises given to David. But they're deaf to all of the prophecies and prophets who point to the real mission of Jesus, blind to what the prophets said concerning the salvation of the heart, the redemption from sin. In just a very few short days, the sentiment and mood is going to turn dark and hostile. The crowds are going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine being the grand marshal of the Rose Parade on New Year's Day, having people wave and scream and cheer, only at the end of the following week to have them string you up and kill you? Let me give you an even better example. Imagine you're John Elway or Peyton Manning. And you're making your way through the crowds of Denver after the glorious, glorious Super Bowl win. And everybody's screaming and cheering. And they want to make you the mayor of Denver or the king of Colorado. And then the next season... They fire you and they make you work at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> How do you go from such an exalted position to one of humility? What caused this? What's going to cause this spiritual blindness? It could be that the religious leaders were blinded by their own position, their own ambition. They substituted the words of Jesus for the traditions of men in Luke eleven fifty two, The people were interested in preserving themselves, protecting themselves, protecting their way of life, just like people today. They're not interested in what Jesus has to say about himself. Or what the Bible says about him. 
And so they disconnect from him. I want you to think just for a moment. The prophecies concerning Jesus don't convince them. The words of Jesus don't convince them. The miracles of Jesus don't convince them. The character of Jesus doesn't convince them. And their stubborn resistance to the truth is going to lead to the denial of the truth. As a matter of fact, later on in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus is brought before yet another crowd, Pontius Pilate is going to say, wait a minute, isn't this your king? Their response will be, we have no king but Caesar. And for the person who celebrates the birth of Jesus or the death of Jesus, but they remain the king of their own life, for all intents and purposes, they say, we have no king. We've made ourselves king. We are, according to the Bible, apart from Christ, blind to our condition before God. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, remember all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each one turned to his own way, but God laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. We're blind to the beauty of Christ. In Isaiah 53, 1, it says we saw him. But he had no form or beauty that we should consider him. We looked at Jesus and he looked just like everyone else. We're blind to the grace of God in Romans 11.8. We're blind to the things of the Lord, 1 Corinthians 2.9. We're blind to the presence of Christ, Revelation 3.18. We're blind to the need of the new birth in John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus is, is going to say that you have to be born from above. You have to be born from on high. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about the blindness of the evil that's all around us and when you are blind to your spiritual condition and blind to the identity of Jesus and blind to the grace of God and blind to the things of God and blind to the presence of Jesus and blind to the need of your that's inside of your own heart then it becomes easier and easier and easier to just simply ignore the world around you and its corruption and deterioration and so what is it that you see? Because what you're able to see will in fact determine just how blind you are. Over 15 years ago, Skip and I went to Ground Zero after the Twin Towers fell. And we had the privilege of sneaking Max Lucado in our car down to ground zero because we had credentials and, and he didn't and I, I wanted to bring him down. But he wrote a book and in this book he, he has a chapter called The Guy with the Donkey. And Max Lucado says, when we all get home, I know what I want to do. 
Max Lucado's from Texas. He says, there's someone I want to get to know. He writes, you go ahead and swap stories with Mary or talk doctrine with Paul. He says, I'm going to catch up with you soon. But first, I want to talk to the guy with the donkey. He says, I don't know his name or what he looks like. I only know one thing, what he gave. He gave a donkey to Jesus on the Sunday he entered Jerusalem. Quote, go to the town. You can see there. When you enter it, you'll quickly find a donkey tied with a colt. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks you why you're taking the donkeys, say that the master needs them and he will send them at once. When we all get to heaven, I want to visit this fella. I have several questions for him. How did you know? How did you know it was Jesus who needed the donkey? Did you have a vision? Did you get a telegram? Did an angel appear in a bowl of lentils? Was it hard to give? Was it difficult to give something to Jesus for him to use? I want to ask that question because sometimes it's hard for me. Sometimes I like to keep my animals all to myself. Sometimes when God wants something, I act as if he doesn't really need it. How did it feel? How did it feel to look out and see Jesus on the back of the donkey that lived in your barn? Were you proud? Were you surprised? Were you annoyed? Did you know, did you have any idea that your generosity would be used for such a noble purpose? Did it ever occur to you that God was going to ride your donkey were you aware that all four gospel writers would tell your story? Did it ever cross your mind that a couple of millenniums later, a curious preacher in South Texas would be pondering your plight late at night? He says, and as I ponder yours, I ponder mine. Sometimes I get the impression that God wants me to give him something. And sometimes I don't give it. Because I don't know for sure. And then I feel bad because I've missed my chance. Other times I know he wants something. But I hear him and I obey him. And I feel honored that a gift of mine would be used to carry Jesus into another place. And still other times I wonder if my little deeds today will make a difference in the long haul. Maybe you have those questions too. All of us have a donkey. You and I each have something in our lives which, if given back to God, could, like the donkey, move Jesus and his story further down the road. Maybe you can sing. Maybe you can smile. Maybe you can hug. Maybe you can program a computer. Maybe you can speak Swahili. Maybe you can write a check, whichever. It's your donkey, whichever. Your donkey belongs to him. It really does belong to him. Your gifts are his, and the donkeys are his. The original wording of the instructions Jesus gives to his disciple is proof. If anyone 
asks you why you're taking the donkeys. Just tell them. The Lord needs them. It could very well be that the Lord needs you. He needs something that only you can provide. And so we ask ourselves that question. Lord, what is it that you need from me? What is it that you want from me? What is it that I can give to you to make sure that Jesus goes a little bit further down the road and is able to fulfill the plan that God has always had. We're going to have communion in a moment, and I'm going to have Carolyn come up. We're going to just sing a song. What I want you to do is just hold off until we're done, and then um, after I pray, you can um, have communion. And then Carolyn is, I'm going to pray, you sing, You guys have communion, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts. Lord, again, the Bible says on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body, which will be broken for you. Again, the Bible says he gave thanks and praise and he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. Lord, this conversation is going to take place shortly after the passage that we've just read. Lord, Jesus said, when you do this, this shedding of of blood is going to be for the remission of sin. Lord, we know that, again, we live in a broken world with all kinds of broken things in it. But, Lord, you've deemed it necessary that the most difficult thing that needs to be addressed is the problem of our soul and the condition of our soul and the presence of sin in our heart. And so, Lord, again, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you that Jesus came. To save, to save sinners from their sin. And that a real Jesus is going to really return. He says, do this, not only in memory of me, but do these things until I come. Lord, we have every reason to believe That if all the prophecies concerning the first coming are true, then all the prophecies concerning the second coming are true as well. That a real Jesus will really come back and take us to the place where we belong forever. And so, Lord, again, as a sign, as a token, not only of appreciation, but of deep love and commitment to you, Lord, we want to honor you and do just what the text says, to do what you've asked us to do. Lord, you said, do this. And so, Lord, we will. Trusting, Father, that it will accomplish exactly what needs to be accomplished. Amen.